Hey, it's Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. It saves a lot of money. And the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in to Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Olm. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Alex Baluta of Flow Capital. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Scott. Really glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. And by the way, people can't see us, but it turns out Alex and I have like the same hairstyle, the same face, facial hair, the same sweater even. So this, this is like we're my, our twins today. We're going to be in a movie soon together. But Alex runs Flow Capital, which is a really strong venture lending firm in Canada that does deals all across North America. So I want to have them on the podcast. Maybe you can tell everyone how you had the idea to start Flow Capital and then maybe segue into what you guys do. Just to go back about 25 years, I was actually a software developer way back in the day in the late, no, it was a long time ago, actually. I was uh, I worked with the Anderson Consulting on a project with Pac Bell in California, actually. And then uh, yeah, that- They to the ballpark in California, in San Francisco. Yep. I love that. Oh. Yeah, uh, actually, it was in it was in the San Ramon office, not in the uh, not in the pack, not in the San Francisco. mind, I grew up in San Ramon in Danville. So. Really, I was a developer, and then I went decided to go back for my MBA. And post MBA, uh, wanted had this desire to combine finance and business. Um, and instead of going the venture capital route, I went the uh, Wall Street route. And so I had a long career as a technology software analyst uh, with companies like Merrill Lynch, Robertson Stevens. I worked out of the San Francisco office for many years. Post that, wanted, you know, as, a, as an analyst, you're a bit of the reporter, not the story. And I wanted to be the story. So I tried several uh, uh, entrepreneurial ventures, uh, including spending four years as a VP of Corp Dev at a, at a growing software company. And then ultimately, started a lending firm doing what we're doing, similar things to what we're doing at Flow, but it was called Temperance Capital. A little bit uh, left on the risk scale, so not as as risky as we're doing now. Not that we're doing particularly risky deals now, but uh, it was a very low risk lender. Um, and ultimately uh, was attracted to Flow. I, I was not a founder of Flow, but I joined about uh, 18 months ago because I was very impressed with the board in particular, some very, very strong board members here at the company. and. Uh, uh, and to be frank, it was a bit of a turnaround, but we've got a very unique positioning and a very unique product offering in what is a commodity field, that being everybody's money is green and how do you compete? So we try, yeah. to, we try to offer slightly different twists on, on the value proposition to with minimal, minimally dilutive capital and very much founder friendly capital. So um, we can get into that more later on. 
Yeah, that's a, you have a great background. We actually live kind of parallel lives because I worked at Hamburg and Quist. Oh, yeah. It's very similar for folks that don't know. Hamburg and Quist and Robbie Stevens and Alex Brown and I'm forget Montgomery Securities were yeah. kind of the four, the four horsemen of IPOs and M&A for tech. Yeah. You know, in the 90s. Yeah, you know, in the 90s so. and, and post 2001, they all of them, I think H&Q is still around, but uh, they all pretty much disappeared. Yeah. H&Q got, thank God, Dan K sold H&Q. To, to chase. He sold it, I think, one month before the market peaked in 2000 or 2000. It was 2000. So he he saved a lot of jobs by selling, selling the company then. For, for, was, for the younger folks in the audience, that was Internet 1.0. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Well, so you were in a, a research. So for folks, also for folks that don't know, research analysts were like the rock stars. The poor M&A people, we weren't really allowed to talk to the research analysts. So we'd be trying to like figure out what 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 they liked and how we could combine companies and things like that. So you, I was like the guy probably reading all your research reports, trying to figure out what you really thought. So you were on the banking side, were you? Yeah, I was on M&A. I did M&A. And, and those days rules have changed too. It was a lot, um, <clears throat> it was a lot easier back then. Now there's, there's very high uh, confidentiality between the divisions in investment banks. Um, and yeah, we used to work together with the bankers a lot post getting approval, but now I don't even think that happens. So yeah, I think you're right. It's a whole new world. Yes. Well, so, and I'm kind of with you. Like I, I, you know, I totally sympathize with the, uh, not being the reporter, but being the, the, the story. And that's why I ended up joining Vanessa at Cruz, but I have a lot of respect for operators and, and having now running my own company. It's like, it's, I realize how hard it is. It's hard. So were there, were there any like things that jumped out at you when you became an operator instead of a research analyst? Like, like any, any crazy moments or crazy lessons? Well, a couple of things. One, being an entrepreneur is incredibly hard. And I have the world's most patient wife uh, who has been incredibly supportive and it's not an easy, easy road. You know, so that's one thing. But I, I, I went into um, uh, uh, to a company as a, as a senior officer thinking that, that there was going to be all these interest, you know, aha moments. And actually, the only real aha moment was I learned who I, who I didn't want to be as opposed to who yeah. I wanted to be. And it was really about how to treat people um, and how to, and how, you know, where, where incentive, where motivation comes from and how internally driven that is and how you don't need to be, a, for lack of a better word, a hard ass to get the best out of people. Yeah. And so, so that was my big, uh, not, not that I was that kind of a person, but I just made sure I didn't want to be that kind of, kind of a person. And, and, you know, you can, you can attract more flies with sugar, I suppose, than you can with vinegar type thing. Also, if you're a real hard ass, the corporate culture can get screwed up and it becomes a self-reinforcing thing. Yeah. And so I, to I totally agree with you. Like that's the people side of it was what was the big aha moment for me was like, oh, wow, this is very different. Like we're not just pushing numbers around on a page anymore. We're actually dealing with personalities, both our client personalities, your, your lender personalities yep. and our team members. And so it's just, it's a whole different ball of wax, but I, I find it super rewarding. I can kind of tell just by talking to you, you're an outgoing person. So you probably really like it too. Yeah. And you know, and, and sometimes somebody can have a bad day and it's not you, right? So don't take it. Yeah. Like I, I, it's really, there's just something going on in their life. That's not working that day. And, and you got to give them some space. So yeah. Anyways, look, it was really, I, I think I got here and everything that I did, while it might not have been uh, as financially rewarding as you might have expected going into it, it's been very rewarding from a um, an understanding of how business works and how people work. And, and you know, I've ended up here trying to put that all together and, and ultimately make 
good investments and help grow shareholder value for our shareholders. Well, you guys have a great reputation. So maybe talk about there's there's something that makes you guys really interesting in the venture debt space. I love to kind of talk about your profile of borrower and how and how you go about finding them. So that's that's a tough one. Not 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 that it's a tough one to describe, but that's that is the one superpower uh, that if I could that we work on every day is the one superpower we want is to find good deals. Um, we want to be a lender to great companies, and and there's really in the venture debt space there's two ways to do it. One is you could just piggyback off venture capitalists. You could be a tradi- traditional venture debt lender. You know you're you're piggybacking on the backs of the VC business model, which is to invest in growth companies and then eventually take an exit. And what you're really doing is you're just helping them bridge to the next round or to cash flow. And, and, and really your client is as much the company as it is the venture capitalist with whom you are co-investing. Great observation, by the way, just if I take a second, you're, it's like game theory and you're playing a repeating game with the VCs yeah. and a one-off game with the entrepreneurs and both matter. Um, and there's positives and negatives of that, but you're totally right. Like you're kind of, a lot of times your real customers like Sequoia Capital or Kosla or, Kleiner or whoever, right? Like that that's kind of your customer yeah. as a as a venture lender that does sponsor deals. They they tolerate you and allow you to make a high teams IRR in the anticipation that you will be a flexible partner when the time comes. So if you think that in the venture debt space you can just foreclose and run away with the assets and leave your venture partners hanging, you will never get another deal with them and quite frankly with other venture lenders or I yeah. say venture capitalists. Yeah, you're totally right. It's a bit of a no, it's a great space. You get your deal flow coming to you from partners. You get um, your terms are very, very well boxed in. But to me, that's very much the commodity space. Where we try to play is, and look, we do some venture-sponsored deals. It's a very small percentage of our portfolio, you know, sub 25%. I expect it'll stay there. Um, where we try to be different is we try to focus on the non-sponsored deals, the bootstrapped companies, or the companies that had some venture sponsorship um, years ago that maybe didn't turn out and, and they're looking to grow their business. You know, there is a huge universe of companies out there, of management teams that don't want venture capital for various reasons. Either they had a bad experience or they don't need it, uh, or they want the overhead that comes with it, which is, you know, a forced date, a forced timeline to liquidity and growth expectations, among other things, you know, intrusive boards, um, and look, those aren't necessarily bad things. One of the good things that come, comes out of having a venture partner is governance. And for us as an investor, when we do unsponsored deals, we find governance is one of the biggest risk factors in terms of just how you know, management sometimes doesn't understand the concept of good governance when, an, when that individual owns 100% of the company. Yeah. So, so we try to focus on unsponsored deals. Uh, we're a growth investor. And really the value proposition for that we give to the company is, look, if you're growing your equity at, I should say, if you're growing your business at 30, 25, 30, 40% per year, your equity value is probably growing at least that quickly. Uh, and I say at least because at a minimum, it'll grow that big, that quickly. But also, the bigger you get, the more you're worth because you get certain scale. And so our proposition is maybe we're, we're certainly not as cheap as bank debt, but had you sold some equity to raise some money, the effective cost of that equity is 35, 45, 50% per year. For us, it might be high teens. Right? Yeah. Um, and so you are earning a, you're keeping your equity, uh, but you're paying us a, a reasonable IRR. But you, as that individual, all that value and that equity that you're growing stays in your pocket. Yeah. It also compounds, you know, like that, 
like when you compound it, if say the delta is 35 minus 18, when you compound it 17% a year, it's, it's that's extra. That's just like cost of capital compounding. Yeah. It gets really, really powerful. And so that, that 17 that you're paying us or somebody else, that's only for three or four years. And then you're yeah. back to the 35% on everything else. Yeah. I, I totally, totally agree. So the, the so you talked about governance, like there's kind of two two challenges with the unsponsored, which is maybe three. Uh, governance, which we should talk about just a little bit. Then like, how do you find them? And three, there's no real safety net, you know? Like this, the, for, you know, one of the reasons that sponsored deals are more popular is because, or maybe not more popular, but there's an industry around it is, that there is a safety net and that a lot of VCs will write that extra check, Absolutely. you know, that last check just to see if the one more card kind of thing. Yep. So that's that's something you guys are kind of fighting because there's no one really around the table to write that last check, right? Yep. That's the challenge. And look, they're all related. So that is a big challenge for us. Is And I think what you'll see is that we have a higher default rate. And we're not talking dramatically higher, but we have to roll up our sleeves more. Uh, we will eventually have a slightly higher default rate than probably traditional venture debt, which just translates into we need to take a slightly bigger return on our investments yeah. to make up for the yeah. losses. But there, look, we, we've had plenty of situations where we've had to be patient, where we've had to add value to management, where we've had to step up and put some more money in. Uh, it is a more challenging, more creative, but it could also be more lucrative. Um, yeah. And so we do view our relationships with our investee companies as a real partnership. Um, yeah. because there is nobody to take us out after two years. It's we're, we're, we're invest. And again, this comes back to the beginning of the conversation. It comes back to people. It's about the individual. It's about, you know, what is their ethical code base and how do they run, you know, how have they treated people in the past? And, and when things get rough and they almost always do, even if it's for a short period of time, how are they going to behave? And so picking the right partner, whether it's them picking us as a partner or us picking them as a partner, really really makes a big difference so so the safety net that that's a that's a uh, that's a big deal you know how do we find them um as i said earlier that's the superpower we try to build it is hard uh we do digital marketing we do conferences we do networks or i should say networking uh, you know amongst the various partners and, and board members that are here and then we do word of mouth so there's really it's there's no real secret to it it's it's just harder work yeah probably also i would think you get a pretty good like clients or borrower referring each other like that even at light, like sponsor deals that was pretty powerful but like when you like you guys are such an interesting soup like you use the word superpower but you really are power, like charging up these companies and giving them a lot more runway and the ability to grow so when it's working well i'm sure the founders are like oh my gosh this is alex's alex has changed my life with this loan here's some other founders that you should be talking to we've alex. got some uh testimonials on our website and, and others that we just haven't uh, had an opportunity to put up there yet. But we've got a management team saying, you are the best capital we've ever taken. We're not yeah. the cheapest, but it's worked for them in terms of giving them the additional capital to achieve their objectives, grow their business. It, it can be very rewarding to see them succeed and us succeed alongside with them. You also use the word when you're describing it, the word investment, which I 100% agree with. Because I think sometimes people think if you're doing a loan, it's just like a loan and you're automatically going to get that money back. But really, I think the way you look at it sounds like is like it's it's almost like it's it's your blood, sweat and tears and your capital going to this company, too. And you're a partner and you're along for the ride for better or worse. Yep. You know, and I think that's that's actually a really healthy mentality 
So if you're a startup or a company, you want your lender to be thinking that way, not just like a, as a, you know, someone who's just a source of capital. You want someone who's really invested in the company's growth in the long term. 100%. You know, you can look at us two ways. We're either expensive debt and certainly relative to a bank, we're very expensive debt or we're cheap equity. Um, and we, we don't often use that positioning, but uh, in many ways, we are very much a cheap equity in terms of the value proposition that the company gets out of out of uh, out of partnering with us. Um, but yeah, it's a partnership. It's uh, yeah. we only succeed. Look, we only succeed if they succeed. There is very rarely we've done over 50 deals, almost 100 million investments. Um, there's just very rarely the case where you can uh, liquidate a company for asset value and get ourselves whole. It just doesn't yeah. happen. That's a great misconception to dive into where sometimes I used to, at Lighthouse, people would say that to me, like, oh, you're going to get your money back no matter what. And I'd be like, no, no, no. no. Like, if, especially if the entrepreneur isn't on board and helping in a sale and helping make something happen, then you're really not going to get your money back. But like the the salvage value of a company or the selling it at the bottom is is, is almost nothing. So it really it That's why I think the investor mentality is so important from a lender. Like you have to be able to work with the companies and preserve the enterprise value so that there's something there to get bought. And, and a lot of times what we used to do was incentivize the management team to come along for the ride and give them a pretty big percent of the proceeds if it was a downside situation. You're 100% right. When, when management has nothing left, um, they have zero incentive to cooperate with uh, any kind of a salvage operation. And um, uh, so, you know, haircuts, uh, restructuring cap tables, you know, finding good partners to help them out of a difficult situation. There's, those are all things that we have to be really good at. We can't yeah. just say to our equity partner, hey, look, it's time for you to take us out. Um, we're going to go on to the next deal. That's that's not how it works. So so it very much is a partnership. It's a long term. We want to make sure we're, we're getting into a relationship with good, solid people. You know, and we also look at the fundamentals of the business. You know, it's got to have a yeah. profile. It's got to have a pathway to, to cash flow positive or at least cash flow visibility. Um, we're not afraid of investing in companies that are losing money at the current time, especially if we can see the trajectory. Um, so we do very deep due diligence, just like a venture capital investor would. It's just that we 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 take most of our return. The, the fundamental difference is equity will wait till some exit many years down the road. We take some of our return on an ongoing basis. So there is that you need to actually pay. You actually you have to be able to pay real cash flow along the way. And look, if we're making a fifteen percent interest rate, for example, three years in, we've gotten we've returned forty five percent of our capital. Like that's yeah, a different yeah. value proposition and risk profile than an equity investor who is waiting for a 10x in five years. Yep, yep. Do you guys do warrants or how do you, how, what's your compensation structure? Like uh, your your uh, return profile, sure. like how do you generate return? So look, we'll do three types of, uh, of loans or investments. One is kind of squarely in a traditional venture debt space, which is, you know, modest interest rate uh, and small warrant coverage. But it starts amortizing pretty much month one, maybe month five, maybe month six. And it's a two or three year term loan. That's the simplest type of structure and also the cheapest for our investing companies or partners. The little bit further to the right in terms of our risk, but in terms of flexibility for the company is a bullet loan. And that'll be three, four or five year bullet. It'll be interest only. There might be a small amount of pick. So maybe it's 15 in cash pay and 2% pick or 14 and three or whatever the number is. Uh, then a slightly higher uh, sliver of warrants. 
And you got to remember the warrants are, are, you know, you pay for them, right? So it's like a embedded equity investment um, down the road. So it's not really free equity. And then a little further to the right again is the concept of a true royalty, where we are probably the only one that I know that actually does a real royalty, which is a perpetual piece of equity, a capital that is repayable at the company's option. So hypothetically, we give a company a million dollars, they'll pay us a, a, a minimum interest rate or a royalty rate, whichever is greater. So it'll be, let's say it's 15, the equivalent of 15% interest or one and a half percent of sales, whichever is greater in that particular month. And we'll take some warrants and we will take a buyout premium, meaning that instead of having a four-year bullet or a three-year amortizing loan, you keep that money for as long as you want it. So you never have to worry about a pending due date on the loan. And that's incredible. You pay it out. And if you want to pay it out in two years or three years or five years or six years, it's up to you. Now, that flexibility costs you a little bit more, but not having to manage to a bullet takes a lot of pressure off managing. Yeah. But yeah. The, well, really, that's that's the value problem. So it's any one of those three structures, you know, amortizing short-term loan, um, non-amortizing bullet loan, or a pure royalty, um, not a not a sort of five-year term loan masquerading as a royalty, but an actual pure royalty. And each of them represents slightly different risk and return profiles, and each of them has different flexibility components in terms of uh, for the investing partner that we invest in. For folks, just for background, like first of all, a four or five-year bullet loan is incredibly friendly to entrepreneurs. I mean, that's like that's as good like kind of that's as good as it gets. And then the royalty-based financing is like even better, like on, in terms of flexibility. I mean, that's really incredible that you guys do that yeah. and. It's, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's hard. I'm sure it's challenging. Yeah. But like the entrepreneur, that's like incredibly valuable because that flexibility, like for just having worked in the business, that flexibility is incredibly valuable. Like, because like for when you we kind of went over the amortizing loan very quickly, but like amortizing loan basically means you're paying back principal immediately or very quickly, kind of like a mortgage. Yep. So like your cash outflow is pretty big. So like the way I used to model, I think at Lighthouse we would hit like all of our cash would be returned like at month 24 or 28 or something like that yep. on a loan. Yep. Entrepreneur, you don't get really get to use the money that long. So you can only make investments that have a like a really short payback period. Whereas with the bullet loan, a four or five year bullet, you can make long-term investments and really grow the business. And you don't have to be freaked out that you need to get paid back on that investment in a year, you know? So I, I, I really like what you guys are doing. Yeah, we, we're kind of a bespoke we're a bespoke investor that uses a, a debt type structure, but we can tailor it to their needs. So we've, we've yeah. seen companies that, you know, they've have heavy cash flow requirements in the first 12 months. And so we'll tone down the, the amount that we take in those first 12 months and then tone it up in the latter months. But like when it works, uh, you know, we've had companies that have generated $50 million in equity value over a three and a half year period. Now, and in a royalty, we take a little bit more, we're, we're a little bit more like equity, but, but we don't take you know, the, the 10x upside, we may take a 3x upside. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But we've had we've had entrepreneurs who've generated a tremendous amount of, of uh, equity value for themselves using this flexible structure. Um, that's really we participated to a much lesser degree than equity, but we participate a little bit. Yeah, that's great. And it's great for your investors, too. What what kind of industries do you go after? Is it tech or what what type? What's your target market? Yeah, great question. We love ARR, recurring revenue, as most uh, venture yeah. investors do these days. So I think 
60% of our portfolio today, maybe 70, is, is technology-based. As I said at the beginning of the call, I have a technology background. Um, many of the members of my board have a technology background. Many of my partners uh, here have technology backgrounds. So we're very comfortable in tech. But we've done food services. We've done peer services, engineering, consulting companies. We're open-minded because good entrepreneurs don't just exist in technology. They're all over the place. And yeah. Key criteria that we look for is, is a bit of a track record. Um, and growth. You, our money becomes too expensive. And it doesn't matter the industry. We're just too expensive if you're growing at 5%. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not afraid of asset light businesses, as most technology companies are. Um, but you have to have a growth profile in order, to, uh, in order for everybody, uh, both us and you, to win when we make an investment of our... Yeah, that makes total sense. And then, Alex, where does your capital come from? Like, who are your investors? Sure. Well, we're a bit unique in that we're a public company, actually. So we, we, we started as a royal, pure royalty investor. We've now broadened that to, as I described earlier, amortizing and non-amortizing. But we still really focus on that royalty piece. The challenge, if you want to be a real royalty investor, is you have an unlimited duration in your investment. So you yeah. can now match your capital with your investments. And if you, biggest problem in our industry is a mismatch between the liquidity in your investments and the duration of the money that you receive from investors. Yeah. You get that mismatch, you're dead. Pay the debt back, like your investors or your lenders back before your customers are paying you back. That's the duration right. mismatch. That exactly, exactly. And so if, you're, if your lenders want their, if the people who've given you money want their money back in five years, but you're not gonna get liquidity for seven, you're in trouble. Yeah. Same problem with our companies, frankly. Um, so we started, the, the company started as a public entity. And so if you think of equity, the investors in our company who've invested equity, they're permanent capital. So that's given yeah. us a, a, a capital base that we can make permanent investments with. Now, it turns out that most of our investments are bought out within four years anyways, four to five years. But we then leverage that equity that we have. We've had debentures that we you know, always made our payments and fully repaid. We've got some creative LP structures that we're using. But the fundamental base of our capital base is, is public equity. Wow, that's really good. Do you pay a dividend or how do you compensate those investors? No. And, and part of that is, again, the uncertainty of cash flows related to yeah. we have certainty of cash flow, but but there can still be some uncertainty. So we may pay a dividend in the future when we have more scale. Uh, we did in the past. Right now, we don't. And to be honest, if I can invest uh, and, and and get a high teens return on a regular basis, I'll get you'll get more appreciation in the capital growth, the equity growth in my company than you would by me paying you a 4% dividend. Yeah, and I ask that question because it's a real trade-off because like a lot of the publicly traded BDCs that do lending do pay a dividend, but you're right. They're kind of like the Robin Peter to pay Paul. Like they could be reinvesting that money at a much higher interest rate right. and compounding faster. So it's a little bit of like, it's, it's an interesting question because like some investors, like my dad likes to invest in high dividend stocks. So he's the kind of person, he's old, yep. you know, so he wants to, but, but there's also like, I like to invest in growth companies. So like I would be more interested in your company than like a traditional BDC, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, we're not quite, but you could look at us as sort of a, a quasi public VC vehicle. We're not, but you can see where it's, it's about capital appreciation. I love it. And then in, in terms of like your spread in where you do investments, you guys are you guys are headquartered, I think, in, in Canada, but you do a lot of that stuff in the U.S. too, right? Yeah. In fact, we've got 60% of our portfolio is U.S.-based across all states, not all states, but uh, east to west, north to south. Uh, we do a lot of companies in Canada, obviously. 
but again, good entrepreneurs will come from. In fact, we've got a, a fantastic investment in the UK. A couple of our deals uh, right now are from the UK. Uh, we've seen deals from Europe. We we right now we're can't spread ourselves two things. So we're doing American Canada, which is really the it's the identical market. There's so I I, I work there. You know, there's just it, there's no difference between our, our 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 economies or what drives our companies. We've gone to the UK. We're very comfortable there. Uh, we will consider a deal on the mainland in Europe, but for now, I think we're we're good with those those three geographies. Yeah. Well, also the Canadian, especially in the tech world, has just accelerated so much. Like it's, you know, like it used to be a, a pocket of entrepreneurs doing tech startups there, but now it's like it's like running 100 miles an hour. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting. I, uh, you know, yeah. With Shopify and some other companies up there, it's, the, the ecosystem is being built very quickly. Yeah. I, I, back to our histories. If you remember 1.0, it was Nortel. Remember, uh, yeah, yeah, I remember Nortel. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, we also worked with the Canadian. This is going to make you laugh, but the Canadian uh, telecom company spun off like a internet infrastructure company that we worked with at H and Q. That was like I think it was like BEA. I don't know. I can't remember what it was. There was but, our internet. Look, it's just like anything. There was a yeah. It was like one There was only like two tech companies you can invest in. <laughs> You know, and that was 20 years ago. Now it's yeah. totally changed. Yeah, look, we, we've got a fantastic infrastructure up here. You know, University of Waterloo is one of the, I think it's it was a couple of years ago, uh, the single largest university from which Microsoft would hire. Um, wow. Same with Amazon, same with, you know, so we have some really great education system. We have, uh, you know, it's hard not to, um, I mean, look, almost all internet eats all businesses. We're seeing that all the time. And so... Yeah. You know, I, I, we have a great entrepreneurial spirit. We have some really great incentives um, in terms of some research R&D tax credits that uh, um, that can be put to good use. So the, the one thing maybe that's the difference between Canadian and American entrepreneurs is Canadian entrepreneurs are a little bit more conservative. That would be the one. They're not, they're not you know, fail, the, the, the fail fast mentality makes sense in certain instances, but the, hey, we'll get there. Just give me a bit of extra time is also a, a good way to grow a company. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're gonna go like 30, not a hundred, but we'll get there. Yeah, that's kind of hard. I mean, that's how we run cruise consulting. So you know, yeah, I, I totally get that. Well, this has been amazing. You got you have a great value prop. You know what you're doing. Maybe you can tell everyone how to find you and Flow Capital and how to reach out. Yeah, sure. Thanks very much, Alex at FlowCap.com. Love to hear from anybody, any entrepreneurs out there who are looking for for founder friendly, minimally dilutive capital uh, partners on the deal flow side. Love you know if you have a friend or a client. If you're a lawyer and accountant that uh, that has a company that could benefit from our type of capital, uh, flowcap.com is our website. So you know, standard. We actually have a you know we have a Twitter account. We're, we're on LinkedIn, and um, you know we tr we're trying to build up our, our. There's a lot of resources that are available on our website for entrepreneurs to help understand the difference between uh, cost of capital uh, or uh, uh, types of some of the bugaboos that you should. And in fact, I, I think you're great at this about highlighting things that you should look at in term sheets and what some of the yeah. big important things are and aren't. So, uh, you know, the standard places. That's awesome. Well, Alex, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it and look forward to working with you. And also people should definitely check you out. Scott, you're doing a great service by having this podcast. We really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise. Founders and friends. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Old.